This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London. Hello, you're listening to Postocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We're a team of PhD students at King's College London trying to navigate this crazy world and we'll be sharing the highs and lows of postgraduate study. My name's Michael Norman and I'm a PhD student at Guy's campus and today I'm joined by Emily Pripper, who's doing a PhD in Nutritional Sciences. We're going to be talking about her research, as well as talking more generally about the topic of public engagement and how media portrays the research. Also joining us on our panel this time is Jane, a third-year PhD student in Psychological Medicine, and you'll remember Handsome Harris from our first episode, and he's a first-year PhD student looking at AI in healthcare. Today I have Emily here with me, who's a second year PhD student based at Waterloo Campus. Her research is looking at the effect of substances in apples on the sugar levels after you eat a meal. So Emily, tell me about your research. Well, you summed it up quite nicely there. Um, Yeah, so basically, I guess you could say I am answering whether or not that old adage is true. Does an apple a day really keep the doctor away? (laughs) (laughs) So why apples? Can you go into that a bit? Well, we know that apples are really high in these substances called polyphenols. But polyphenols are actually found in pretty much every fruit and vegetable. So we could have picked any other vegetable or fruit, I should say, considering I'm looking at apples. And these polyphenols help a plant. um, They help a plant defend itself against pests, diseases, even sun damage. And what nutrition research is discovering at the moment is that as we eat these polyphenols, obviously in the form of fruits and vegetables, so for example, apples, they can also have a beneficial effect on our health too. And one of these effects, like you said at the beginning, is on our blood sugars, or known as blood glucose, after we eat a high carbohydrate meal. So when you eat a high carbohydrate meal, so what did you have for lunch today, Mike? A Sainsbury's meal deal, so I had a wrap. Okay, (laughs) good. I can work with a wrap. So um, that's a high carbohydrate meal in itself. You've got some white carbs in there. And what happens to your blood sugars when you eat this, Mike, is that you get this really sharp rise in blood sugars. And then probably after about 45 minutes, they're going to start to drop quite dramatically afterwards. That's why everyone says don't have your high carbohydrate meal or your white pasta at lunchtime because then you're going to get this slump. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But that's a completely natural and normal response. And that's great in a healthy individual. But if we continuously have our high carbohydrate meals one after another and continuously throughout the day, we're getting these peaks and troughs, peaks and troughs in our blood sugars. And that is actually very detrimental to our health. For example, the functioning of our blood vessels and can lead to all sorts of complications, one of which might be type 2 diabetes. So given the fact that, you know, type 2 diabetes, we all know the stats, it's dramatically increasing. But also the fact that we all love our high carbohydrate meals, whether that's your wrap, your pasta, so be it. We need a way to create a more steady rise in blood sugars after these meals rather than the sharp peak and trough. And this is where the apples and their polyphenols come into play because they might be able to do exactly that. So you've probably heard of, you know, a slower release, um, a fuller for longer effect. So you could think of it like that. That's how these apples are having their effect. Yeah, so sugar is definitely the baddie at the moment, I suppose. Oh, don't get me into this. (laughs) And diabetes is really interesting because it's sort of, 
reducing the NHS burden and exactly. preventing type 2 diabetes, what would be your tips, let's say, yes. in a nutshell? So it's, I'm really or, glad you've asked that question rather than kind of focusing, turning this into like a nutrition podcast and everyone coming at me with, well, what should I fill my trolley with when I go to the supermarket? Yeah. So yeah, I'm specifically looking at apples and their effect maybe therapeutically with type 2 diabetes because as I, as I was explaining with those blood sugar peaks and troughs, that can be really detrimental for someone that has type 2 diabetes. It can really exacerbate their complications. So a lot of the medications that are used in um, diabetes therapy at the moment um, are amylase inhibitors. So amylase um, breaks down um, starch and sucrose into glucose so that our body can use it. Now, these drugs work by inhibiting the amount that um, the amount that can be broken down into sugar and therefore slows down the rate at which the food is digested and released into your uh, blood. Yeah. So the way in which these polyphenols are working might actually be by being amylase inhibitors as well. So yeah. that's really interesting and that's kind of what my second year of my PhD is going into is how exactly mechanistically are these polyphenols having their effect. So one is that they may be inhibiting digestive enzymes, therefore a slower, a, not a smaller amount because the same amount of glucose might be getting through the small intestine, but uh, it's just going over a longer period of time. So therefore we're changing the profile of the glucose release. But also, they may be having an effect by having an um, by inhibiting transporters that are situated on the small intestine that pick up your glucose and release it into the blood. The polyphenols may just be inhibiting them, so binding to them, so the glucose can't get in. And again, it just slows down that release. So therapeutically, maybe they're going to be able to be used instead of these drugs if they are able to mimic the exact same mechanism that the drugs are using. Yeah, amazing. I think it's really good because diet is kind of a, a minefield, but you're actually <laughs> doing the science behind nutrition yeah. and sort of the mechanistic to link, because diet links to so many diseases. Absolutely. Um, and it's kind of one of those things at the moment where everyone seems to be a dietitian or a nutritionist. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it's quite clear to make out that as a nutritional scientist, that's exactly what I am. I'm focused on the science of nutrition. If I was a dietitian, however, I would be focused on your diet and how I would relate this science into what it looks like on a plate. So, yeah, that's something that people might not be aware of. In terms of the impact of your research, sort of translating it to sort of, let's say, therapeutically or treating diabetes, where, where do you see the end goal of this research? Okay, so I should probably come back to what I'm working with at the moment. So to kind of cut the image of you thinking that I'm in the lab with a bunch of apples, like pink ladies, <laughs> that is not what I'm working with. I am working with an extract. So I'm working with an extract that's really high in polyphenols. So it's come from cider apples specifically. And um, they extract all the polyphenols from it. And it's then in the form of a powder. And the way we have worked with it at the moment is in a human trial, we've put the powder into a drink. Yeah. So we've shown exactly what I've explained here by lowering the glucose response. Um, so how I see it going, first of all, the industry need to go back and work on the work on the taste of it because no one is going to want to drink that drink. I assure you, I've tried it. I don't want it, even if it's going to lower my sugar response to a lovely 
carbohydrate meal chocolate brownie uh, yeah I <laughs> no. don't want to eat it um, but uh, how I see it going is hopefully um, this extract can be used within functional food and beverages and that can be disseminated um, on a population level that would be amazing but if anyone can take anything from my research hopefully when it gets published you know what all PhD p- students want mm. is that hopefully I can somehow relate how much how many polyphenols are in the extract dose that was effective so that was around 900 milligrams and that equates to about six apples so um that would mean i would need you to eat six apples before your sainsbury's wrap tomorrow but hopefully we can go on and figure out you know how we can relate this quite niche product then into the diet of an everyday individual and maybe it won't just be on apples maybe it will be on your bananas and your strawberries and your carrots you know the possibilities are endless hopefully amazing thank you so thanks, Emily, for that. That was really interesting. Uh, now joining our panel is Harris and Jane. So, Harris, would you drink apple extract to prevent high glucose levels? So I've definitely done some weird stuff with my diet <laughs> for, for the purposes of, like, optimal nutrition. Sure, who um, hasn't? So, yeah, so I, I would be open to it, at the idea of drinking this weird powdered extract drink. I mean, it's not that, to me, it doesn't sound that different to like a pre-workout or a protein shake, which millions of people around the world, you know, take every morning or after every workout. Um, So, yeah, no, I definitely would. So I used to drink this really weird thing called bulletproof coffee. Have you heard of it? I've heard of this. Yeah. (laughs) So I used to put myself through this. So every morning on an empty stomach, I would make like black coffee and then... Coconut oil, right? Okay, so I went like real... So I d- didn't stand for coconut oil. So I went to pure MCT oil, so medium chain triglycerides, which are sort of the fatty acid yeah. in coconut oil. So I'd, I'd make my black coffee. Uh, I'd put it in a blender. It was a tablespoon of this MCT oil and then like a good chunk of grass-fed butter, <laughs> like the Kerry's one, which is really nice butter, like for anything else. But anyway, and then I'd blend this at like 5 a.m. and then chug it down and go to the gym. So I'd definitely up for it. So if you give me a good pitch, so now I don't do that anymore because there's like a lot of stuff coming out a bit like this. It doesn't really make a difference. Yeah. Um, but I'm like committed I, to it. I think this is what we're going to go on to and talk later on in the show, but about how nutrition is brought up in the media and everyone jumps on these bandwagons. Yeah, yeah. But hopefully, I think you probably notice polyphenols are coming into the light of uh, most media things. You know, there's this whole thing now that... Um, red wine's really good for us and that's a lot because of the polyphenols in it and that kind of thing so I don't know what do you think about it Jane? So it um, brings to mind so you know how cider are from apples are there like polyphenols in cider? Does that mean we should eat drink like ciders instead of eating apples? Yeah exactly everything (laughs) please no one take this as nutritional (laughs) advice this is me talking about the science of my research so please don't stretch for cider rather than your apple Um, polyphenols are pretty much found in anything that is coming from plant sources so whether that's your turmeric or your general fruits and vegetables you're going to be eating polyphenols Um, but the really interesting thing about kind of my work is now looking at how they're having their effect Mm -hmm. and that's something that's quite a hot topic but it's really difficult because we don't really know how they're um, metabolized within the body so we may eat for example, one polyphenol that's really high in apples is um, fluoridzin. But by the time it gets into your body and in your bloodstream, it's floritin. Yeah. And that acts completely differently or slightly differently. And half of the 
polyphenols that you eat, they don't even get absorbed by your stomach. So they go straight down to the colon. And then it all comes into the play about the gut and yeah, how the yeah. gut, you need certain bacteria to then have an effect of these polyphenols. So There's it's a bit of a minefield. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, so for me, the clinical context of sort of type 2 diabetes is really pertinent. So I'm from a South Asian background. And so type 2 diabetes is everywhere in my family. So my mother, my father, my paternal uncles, all of them, all of my aunts, on my uh, father's side, uh, a lot of my mum's brothers and sisters. So, yeah, so it's, it's a big thing. And so someone like me who's willing to try anything once in terms of nutrition or diet, that's not the same experience that I've had seeing my parents deal with diabetes. It's, it's very difficult for them to adhere to a lot of the nutrition or dietary advice that they Absolutely. get. And so something like if it were to be effective, you know, just a shake or apples a day, to me sounds like almost too good of a situation. Um, I don't think nutrition research is ever going to rival pharmaceutical companies, but if we can alleviate some of the pressure or at least kind of step in before someone reaches type 2 diabetes, um, kind of stop those peaks and troughs a little bit before I think it could do the world of good but yeah I'm not I'm not anticipating this apple extract to start um taking over from really you know the drugs that individuals cannot live without really yeah do you imagine that it could somehow be incorporated in drugs or is it just a completely separate field? It would be nice to know if it could go alongside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's really tricky to to say. I think that would be something from my own personal experience to, to know that it's having such a beneficial effect for me personally would be amazing. Yeah. yeah. But I personally do not think that that is going to happen. This is very interesting because when I was a teenager, I used to try fat like fat diets. Yeah. And then, uh, one of the fat diets was like having uh, apples like every meal with like a plate of um, just any kind of vegetables. And uh, you're supposed to not have really? this diet. And you're supposed to like lose like five pounds per week. I did that. Where did you find this diet? How did you come across it? I don't know. Like I heard it from a friend. But uh, but <laughs> the, the interesting thing is um, I was wondering if there's too much apples, would there be a side effect or too much? Exactly. Like, so, well. Do you get drunk? No, actually not. So earlier in the um, podcast, I was talking about how um, apples are really high in fluoridzin, for example. Yeah. So the reason why we needed to be careful with this extract and how much we were giving um, was because fluoridzin is, um, could be potentially toxic in the oh, sense okay, yeah. that um, when it is metabolized in the body, it can um, inhibit renal reabsorption of glucose and therefore you are then um, excreting glucose in your urine, which can lead to u- urinary tract infections, for example. Yeah. Um, what we found with our research is that it did not, um, even the highest dose of our apple extract did not cause um, any um, increase in urinary glucose What's the sort of apple equivalent of that dose? Um, I think it was... In in terms of fluoridzin content, I think it was... The highest dose was um, six apples. Okay. Okay. The highest dose. The lowest dose, which was effective. I think you're fine with (laughs) three. Um, So, yeah, but in terms of fluoridzin content, our lowest effective dose was three apples that had an effect on blood glucose of lowering it. And, again, no effect on... um, on uh, urinary glucose output, which I think I said that it equated to six apples earlier to Mike, so that might be wrong. I really should know the results of these it inside no, and out. Worry. This isn't your but... thesis defense. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is not my viper. Please. Be people far more scary looking. All I would say, I think it comes down to is, you know, nutrition is really a delicate subject sometimes when you discuss it like this. Because people jump on the bandwagon of it and everyone's a nutritionist these days who is, um, you know, everyone's taking photos of their foods and telling everyone to eat you know, I don't know, spirulina, which just tastes horrific. So I don't want to eat that. And Wait, what's spirulina? Yeah, it's like this wheaty grass. Oh, okay. oh it just... Yeah. The fact that you like don't know, just keep... Foods. You don't yeah. need it, yeah. Okay. Although I guess you're probably going to go and research now that oh, with your coffee, your bullet coffee or whatever it's called. <laughs> I might blend it with coffee. Yeah, good, good <laughs> luck to you. But yeah, so I think with regards to this extract, coming back to whether or not people can get it down them. So hopefully, you know, it works well in a drink or in a yogurt for example and can just help lower some of the um, glycemic index or the blood glucose peaks from high carbohydrate meals hopefully fingers crossed amazing guys uh harris i think i'll be staying away from that bullet coffee uh but thanks emily and the panel for that discussion remember if you have any thoughts about what we've talked about uh you can tweet us at postocalypse 18 Next up, we'll be talking about public and media engagement and the importance of communicating your research to a wider audience. But first. So, Nicole, tell us how you are nerdy in the lab. So, not just me, but a couple of the other girls in the lab and I have a little sing-song on a daily basis. We try to harmonise to Disney songs (laughs) and anything playing on the radio. So, yeah, fun times. So, what about you, Jenny? So, after a lot of sugar intake, mainly sweets, um, I used our tissue culture pipette gun and pretended I was James Bond, 007, <laughs> and rolled around on our tissue culture floor. That's brilliant. Thanks for confessing that, <laughs> Amazing. I'm loving all you nerds. Uh, but back to business. So, Emily. Yes. Here we go. And I think we touched on it slightly in part one, but the importance of communicating your research. And I think diet and nutrition is like one field where it is literally a minefield and sort of finding out what is right and what's wrong. I completely agree with you, Mike. And I think, honestly, we have completely overcomplicated diet and nutrition. And whether or not, you know, the media are to blame, I don't know. But um, social media, particularly nowadays, you go onto Instagram and it seems that everybody is a nutritionist. I know I kind of mentioned that earlier, but it really is. And I think if there's anything that I would love to say on this, it's that people need to be really, really, really careful that when someone is talking about nutrition, just make sure that they are accredited in one way or another. And what I mean by that is, Anyone can go online nowadays and complete a course online and they can then call themselves a nutritional therapist, for example. But um, for anyone that is an accredited or registered nutritionist, um, they have done a master's or a degree program that has been affiliated by the Association for Nutrition. And these individuals are completely qualified and really you want to be seeking out their advice. A lot of other um, information that gets portrayed out there, particularly in social media world, is um, just not backed up really by any science. Yeah, so like getting the science to the forefront of the media do you think it's a responsibility for more uh nutritionists to come forward and communicate their research shoot or to I media do. Or, yeah, yeah i do but i think people like to see a pretty picture and that kind of thing and it's actually it's difficult when 
I don't know whether sometimes we give kind of the public, I don't think this might be in true of all of our research, we don't give them enough credit that they're in, more intelligent than we think they are. And we kind of yeah. almost dumb down the research a little bit too much. I don't know whether that's something you've experienced. Yeah, oversimplification is the yeah. problems of so much research. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's definitely the media. They sort of pick something up and then they sort of, sort of simplify in such a way that actually the real... Um, information of that research is sort of been, lost. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I know. Um, but to kind of go back to particularly nutrition, um, there's also this idea that when I'm talking about these nutritional therapists, I really want people to be very careful. I don't know whether you heard about the study, on the, not the study, the um, the health blogger that said she cured her brain cancer through yeah. nutrition. Um, she basically told everyone to go on a gluten-free diet, dairy-free, and just eat vegetables and fruit. And this cured her brain cancer. And that, to me, is absolutely terrifying. And even individuals that are promoting, say, for example, very plant-based vegan diets, yet they won't talk about that individuals, they need to be grabbing fortified milks with B12 because B12 is so important for our homeostasis, our normal body functioning yeah. yet um they will not mention this at all and it drives me crazy i am so like fighting those fads and fighting down those people it's something i'm really 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 passionate about so yeah fake news it's all fake news, it's all fake news. Exactly. yeah exactly. i think do you think i don't want to go like extreme but do you think only scientists should be allowed to communicate such complex um, matters or I don't really know how to solve yeah, this like what's the solution it, I'm not sure I'm not sure I know speaking from um, my field it's that we're really kind of um, driven to now protect our title as nutritionists um, so dietitians, those individuals you would see when you're in a hospital so when you're doing tube feeding or if you have an individual with type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular disease and we're trying to um, assist them with their diet you would see a dietitian whereas a nutritionist when we're kind of feeding the guidelines that these individual the dietitians are then relaying to patients we need to have a protected title at all as well because we need the right people communicating the right research and not just all of a sudden a massive hype and the sales of i don't know what's going to be next let's hope it's polyphenols but it might be i don't know what were we, what were we eating last month turmeric i think might have been the one next yeah. next it's going to be cardamom i'm sure we're going to be having cardamom lattes i don't really want to sign up for that but it's probably going to be the next thing and i just think you know just be really really careful it's all got a little bit overcomplicated, and there's nothing wrong with just having a slice of cake and also eating your vegetables don't worry too much i think we we're all absolutely terrified of eating food at the moment so, that is yeah. a big relief for me <laughs> <laughs> now let's go get some cake mike hey? yeah. <laughs> Love it. So there's a lot of baddies, by the sounds of things, on social media. Uh, but where can like an average Joe like me go for like the real science in oh, nutrition? I love that question. Um, great one to end on because actually there's um, people who inspire me who I think are doing an amazing job. There are great people out there. I'd love people to follow and listen to. They're really kind of like breaking down kind of the BS on uh, the um, the kind of health guru world of Instagram. So there's Sophie, the dietitian, who works here at King. She's absolutely fantastic. There's also the gut health doctor. I love what she's doing. She's a researcher at King's as well. Check her out. Um, and yeah, I would kind of say... Uh, 
see who they're following and I think it's just kind of taking everything with a little bit excuse the pun but a pinch of salt and maybe question who you're following and what advice that they're uh, what they're putting out there for you amazing so back to the panel science communication how do we do it and whose responsibility is it Jane yeah Mike I, actually that's a really really good question because with the technology now like um uh, everybody could access all kinds of um, scientific findings, and then there are so many news out there. Like it's so hard for our, us to um, make our um, research seen by others. Yeah, I don't know if Harris, you have the same feeling. Um, to to a certain degree, I think the the issue with say nutrition, as an example, what Emily and Mike were talking about, there's like a problem. I think from both ends, talking from say the lay people or reporters, and then also the scientists in that scientists are naturally very cautious about making claims about their results, obviously, right? Um, in this sort of uh, very competitive and uh, social media-aware world, um, misreported results or exaggerated claims can affect a scientist's reputation very quickly, right? And so there's a sort of uh, reluctance on our part to talk about these results. And then when you have that, where you don't have scientists making a conscious and uh, consistent effort to talk about their results to lay people, then you have, lay, let's say, scientific correspondence for magazines or newspapers who want this information, they'll go looking for it. And so from their end, I guess it's perhaps, this might be controversial to say, say a failing of our sort of general scientific education, where a lot of these reports of nature will publish something and a, a correspondent will read it and, say, exaggerate its claims. Um, so to give it like a concrete example, I did some research in diabetes, but looking at um, body composition of b black African men with diabetes and white European men. And so what we showed in our small data set, it was about 40 men altogether, that lean African men had a higher incidence of type 2 diabetes. But we didn't tell anyone about this. I mean, I presented it at a scientific conference, but there was no press. Like, do you see what I mean? There's, yeah. there's yeah. this gap yeah. that happens where yeah. we have some results and yeah. it gets published for our peers yeah. as scientists. Yeah. And then no one sort of picks up the baton until someone perhaps inappropriately picks it up. Yeah. And then you get what we yeah. get with what we have with nutritional science. Yeah, but I also think also the topic of the research is very important. Like mm -hmm. what everybody's like wanting to hear. Like if um if the research is like uh um like uh, the finding is very, very typical, like yeah. it won't catch the media's attention. But today yes. if like yeah, yeah. I feel like media sometimes um they are on our side, but sometimes they misuse the terms. So then it makes the scientific findings. Um, for example, I'm just taking Emily's um, research as example. Like yes, yeah, an yeah. apple a day, like keeps the doctors away. So everybody start eating apples. It sounds really nobody, nice, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so and nobody goes back to see the the, the what, things behind. Yeah, what yeah. was actually found out? Yeah. So what about in your research? So you're in psychology. Yeah, like um. So that's patient facing, right? Yeah. That's, there's a lot of uh, uh, interfacing with members of the public. How do you engage with the public? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, actually, I work with kids with um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, okay. ADHD. Yeah. So, um, uh, my research is on omega three fatty acids, like okay, with yeah. the EP and DHA. Like, um, that's gonna what's DHA? Sorry. Uh, like they are like uh, both um essential fatty acids that we can only obtain from eating foods like avocados, gotcha, um, yeah. like fishes and nuts. Yes, yeah, yeah, and so my 
PhDs to look into whether that helps like, attention in children with ADHD. Yes, yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, people might mistake it as like, okay, don't take medication. No, that's not where I'm starting from. It's, okay, it's more, yeah. So how do you get that across? For example, like um, we have the three minute thesis, like yes, yeah, yeah. at at, at um, Kings, and then we try to um, make public engagement so they understand what we're doing. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also like um, there's the podcast we're doing right now. It's sort of kind of scientific. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all sorts like trying to um deliver the message about like uh what we are trying to do here it's not to uh say the current therapy is wrong it's just like we want to add more to it so it's yeah. more complete and so like um for example kids with adhd would receive more treatments or a better a comprehensive like yeah. um skim like during their therapy so would you so there's like an underlying assumption that it's the researcher's responsibility in the first place is it Given all the demands, maybe as PhD students or much more senior researchers who are heads of labs, whose names essentially are the ones that will be first in any of these publications, these uh, sort of media publications, is it their responsibility with all the tutoring, mentoring, science, grant application, all the other stuff that's on their plate already? Is this now another responsibility of theirs? Are we going to say that? But I don't recall taking a class in that. Like... Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, like it's not like train, like it's not like a a regular course like in undergraduate or like in like grad graduate school. This science communication. Yeah, this science yeah. Com- or it's not a mandatory course that no, for us yeah. to take. And I think a lot of um, I mean, the public would want us to like um disseminate our like research findings. But yes, the thing yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Do you find the time to do it? Because. I'm like. I mean, I find time to do this, but this is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a lot more fun, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying like writing, like what you said, regularly yes. publishing your result, what you're doing with research. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very, it's a very tedious and commit committed job and stuff. And for me, I want to do it, but I'm trying to find the time and balance to finish my PhD on time yeah. and also to try to do the public engagement. Yeah. So I, I think that there's a sort of perhaps a deeper, more controversial question with scientists dictating how their results are communicated to a lay audience Um, because we're obviously not free from fault, right? This has been evidence throughout the history of science. And so, say, for example, we swap scientists to politician, right, and dictating policy and how that's communicated to the public. We wouldn't want that. We want to. We would want to live. We live in a world where journalists interrogate and review policy documents themselves, and try to deduce what they mean and what their impact will be themselves. And obviously, they'll get things wrong, or so there'll be miscommunications. But the fundamental idea is that the politician is not dictating what's happening in the press, and scientists in the real world do have agendas, right, of how their science, of their science is presented. So there's this sort of counter-argument that it shouldn't be our responsibility. And in fact, making it a scientist's responsibility is in fact a bad thing. What we ought to be doing is sort of improving the scientific education of lay people, of correspondents, of science journalists, so that they can appropriately interpret what we're outputting. So basically making friends with the media <laughs> and the reporters. Yeah, well, but in, in a way that, we facilitate their interpretation, exactly. but we don't dictate it. Or it's not sort of straight from our mouth. Exactly. You see what I mean? It has to be the, their understanding of what we're saying. But a lot, So in the current climate, 
this is where we've come a cropper essentially. So maybe we should have like network meetings with like、um, the reporters and the journalists. So I think that would be a, a great idea. With a glass of wine, perhaps for those. Amazing, thanks, guys. So if you want to、uh, tweet about tweet to us. Uh, about anything we've talked about, or if you have any suggestions for what we can talk about in the future, our Twitter account is postocalypse eighteen. And finally, overheard in the lab, does this lab coat make me look fat? <laughs> Over and out.